Jenate. Hey, well done on the box sled blitz. I'd like to, uh, where are the toolbox boys? <laughs> well done. That was some real speed. That was well done. Well done. I especially was just fascinated by the speed there and the opening presentation. I wanted to say well done on you and cool. So, yeah. Well, hey, I want to tell you a little bit about my uh, background growing up because I think it, it'll be helpful just for you guys to know where I'm coming from. So I grew up in Chicago. My, my childhood was there. And I am one of seven kids. So I have five sisters and one brother. It's a lot of estrogen in one house. And um, yeah, I have five sisters, so I was always sharing a room with my brother. He is, my brother's like an evil warlord, you know, like was always beating me up, you know. Um, but we had these bunk beds that were essentially like a World War II tank. They were metal and they were like forged in the fires of Mordor. And they were just like really thick metal. I mean, they were like, if there was an earthquake, these things want to be phased. But my brother and I, we got real motivated one weekend because it was the week before Thanksgiving, and we had watched just recently a movie, maybe you've heard of it, called Rocky IV. And in Rocky IV, it's a famous boxing movie. There's Rocky Balboa, and he goes to fight Ivan Drago, and he's training in Russia. And there's this scene where... Uh, Rocky is training in this barn, and you guys kind of imagine it with me. He's hanging from a loft, and he's doing those like upside-down sit-ups, you know what I'm talking about, where his legs are being held, and he's kind of doing this thing, and he's coming all the way up. And my brother, watch, we're watching that, and I'm nine, and he's 10, and I'm going, we gotta be ripped like Rocky, you know? And uh, I, had a, I had an uphill battle. He kind of had it naturally, stupid jerk. But anyway, so... I, I'm there and he, Kyle's down and I'm holding his feet up on the bunk bed and he's doing his sit-ups and my sister walks in the room, I get distracted, I let him, I let him go, boom, this is Thanksgiving morning, he comes down, boom, on the metal bunk bed, splits his head open, got like 30 stitches, Thanksgiving, we take him to the hospital and um, we bring him back, you know, Thanksgiving's already ruined. But it was my little sister who had walked in on us before and kind of threw off our groove, our training groove, and my older sister, you know, if you have a big family and you have an older sister, she's functionally like the second mom, if you know what I mean. She was, she was like, boys, boys, what are you doing? You know, so she was like, Kyle, Kyle, what happened? She's like 10 years old, but talks like a 50-year-old woman. She's like, Kyle, sweetie, you weren't thinking, were you? You know, and uh, she goes, what were you guys doing? And we were trying to explain it. You know, Christine, we're trying to be like Rocky. We gotta get ripped to protect the sisters. <laughs> And it just was too hard to explain with words. So we had to demonstrate and, and show her. So I got back up on the bunk bed. Kyle's hanging upside down, and I, I let him go again. Kyle comes back down, Thanksgiving, shatters the other side of his head, back to the hospital. He's gone all day. Thanksgiving's doubly ruined. Kyle might have gotten stitches, but it was an equally bad day for me. And here's why. It was because with the second set of stitches, we had to get rid of the metal bunk beds. And, and this is why it was tough, is I was afraid of sleeping in a bunk bed. Because if you're on top, what's the danger? You're falling off. I'm a, I'm a sleepwalker, you know? Like, I am always running away from Captain Hook in my dreams, you know? So I, got, I, I have danger there. And if you're on the bottom, what's the danger? You're gonna get crushed. 
But so here's what happens. There's Mr. Marv, he's in our church. He makes us new wooden bunk beds, which stink. And I'm just terrified for my life. It's the first night that we have those wooden bunk beds. And Kyle used to do these, this thing. He's kind of like a, a nifty guy, but we kind of had like a little bookshelf, a bigger bookshelf, and, he, and then the top bunk. And he used to do this thing every night where he would kind of like hardcore parkour, go boom, bookshelf, boom, and then do this like little flip onto the bed. First night we're in the new bunk bed. Kyle does this thing. Boom, 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 boom. Smashes me, just destroys. It goes from the top bunk down on me. Smashes my face. I'm just under there like that and there's like a wooden board there. And I'm like, Kyle, help. And uh, instead of helping me out, my brother gets on top of the bunk bed. I'm underneath it, just flailed, you know? And he just goes, ah, ah. Ah, ah, stand a lot and just destroys me. It's the middle of the night. It's one of those nights where my mom just wakes up and she's just gonna go pray over her sons, you know? And she comes up, sees that my brother is once again torturing me. And you know, that they, have you ever heard of those stories where like the mom has like supernatural strength and like moments like her, her kid was like under a car and she's like, it's like Lord of the Rings soundtrack. And she just rescued me from my wicked brother, but if you've ever been kind of trapped like that where you feel helpless, nowhere to go, my brother kind of put me in those situations often. We're close now, we've worked through it. But I was totally, totally trapped under this bunk bed. And by way of illustration, if you've ever felt that way where you can't move, you're stuck completely, the entire Old Testament is to try to get you to feel exactly that way in regards to your relationship with God, meaning that you can do nothing, go nowhere. It says in Galatians 3, remember what we talked about this morning by the nature of sin? It says in Galatians that the entire point of the Old Testament is to make you feel, it says, trapped, and the word it uses in Galatians for trapped is the same word that's used to describe a fish that is caught in a net with nowhere to go. You know in Finding Nemo where all those fish are caught and it's like, swim down, swim down, and there's, they're panicking and panicking? The Old Testament doesn't give anybody a great degree of confidence in their standing before God without the idea that there must be someone who comes to pay for their sin. It makes them feel trapped, they're suffocated, they feel this crushing load upon them and they need to cry out for a savior. Now in the beginning of what we looked at this morning in regards to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit and it says that the entire world now that you and I live in has been subjected to futility, meaning that every single person here recognizes we live in a broken world and the reason we live in a broken world is because it's full of broken people. The rest of the Bible is basically, the Old Testament that is, an anticipation for someone to come and redeem and restore what had been broken. We've all been cast east of Eden, and now in our hearts there's this longing for Eden to be restored, and not only does Eden need to be restored, but our hearts need to be recrafted because God made us with hearts that should long to know him, but now our hearts are naturally dead, and we are by nature children of wrath, it says in Ephesians. But what happens on the opening pages, and this will be helpful because I want you to understand, I want you to understand the scope of scripture, and here's why. You can't just understand isolated fragments of the Bible and be thrilled by it. It'd be like someone showing you one scene from a movie and going, isn't this amazing? But you don't understand what's happening. You have to understand the characters. To love God, you have to know the great need you have for God. 
And so I just wanna briefly summarize the storyline of the Bible because it'll help us where we're going this evening. In Genesis three, it says that the eyes of them were opened and they realized they were naked, right? But here's what happens. It says in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. Now this is the first sacrifice in in the Bible. And then in Genesis 3.15, there's a promise right away. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed. This is God talking to the serpent. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Right away in the Bible, from the moment in Eden where everything is ruined, there's a promise that one day there's gonna be a coming savior. And the way that the coming savior is gonna work is he's going to die, he's going to be bruised. The Old Testament then is, is basically people that feel this tension that I was made to dwell with God. Adam and Eve were made so that they would walk in the garden in the cool of the day and dwell with their father. But now that it's been destroyed, they need to be reconciled with God. And so in the Old Testament, the way that that functioned was that God in his love and in a way that he might preserve his justice but yet dwell with his people, he implemented a system. And that system is called the sacrificial system. So throughout the Old Testament, animals are slaughtered over and over and over and over again. Real time, real point in history for thousands and thousands of years. Dad, what are we doing today? Come here, Ben, let me take you. We're going to the temple. And as that dad would take his son to the temple, his son would have to lean on a lamb as the lamb was being slaughtered. Why? because God was driving home a vivid drama before their eyes for thousands of years. There is no reconciliation with God apart from bloodshed. Apart from bloodshed. And God's wrath is always poured out on sin. Watch this. If you miss this, you miss the entire Bible. God's wrath is always poured out. And it's either poured out on the sinner or it's poured out on a substitute. And in the Old Testament, that substitute was an innocent, blameless, pure lamb. And so the Old Testament is this longing for a better solution because every single time someone would offer a sacrifice, they would walk away from the temple and the moment they walked away, they would prove who they are in their DNA, that being a sinner. So the second after they offered a sacrifice, another sacrifice would be needed and it was never finished. Is it finished at how many more sacrifices? It's not finished, it's not finished, it's not finished. Not only that, these people had a disjointed and disconnected relationship with God. And so the Bible teaches in the Old Testament that there needs to be a better sacrifice, a once and for all final lamb that pays for our sin because God is not a king who just dismisses sin. Sometimes we say that God pardons sin, but when you think of pardon, you think of like some chunky king up on a throne going, eh, don't worry about it. God never says don't worry about it with your sin, ever, ever. He's never said, I don't actually care about that one. Eh, we'll let that one slide. Every single sin will be punished. And God's justice will be poured out on the sinner or on the, what's the other word? Substitute, either on the sinner or on the what? Substitute. Now in the Old Testament, there's this anticipation for the Savior, the God-man, the Messiah. And what the Messiah is going to do is he's not only going to cleanse our hearts of sin, he doesn't need to just purify our hearts, he has to do what with our hearts? He has to, watch what we just watched in the video, he has to make them new. Because what God needs to do is not just pay the penalty for our sin, he needs to take our hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. 
Now in Ephesians 4, we're going to finish the passage tomorrow, but there's one thing I want to look at by way of just introduction before we go to John 3 for the rest of our time. Paul says in Philipp, or Ephesians 4, 22, it says that you, in reference to your former uh, manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the seed, that's the old man, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now here's what you need to understand about where we're going tomorrow. If you're a Christian in the room, the will of God for your life, do you wanna know God's will for your life? Well, it doesn't need to be found. It needs to be obeyed. The will of God for your life is that you become more like Jesus. That's what we were just singing. So in your mind, in your heart, and in your affections, your mind is renewed. But the renewing of your mind is only available to those who have already been given a renewed heart. And so with that, I wanna look with you at a story, the most famous story in human history. Look at John 3. John 3, and in this chapter, we're gonna come across the most famous words ever penned. And yet there's so much around the story that's unknown. Okay, now, at the end of John chapter two, it says Jesus doesn't need anyone to testify concerning man because he knows what's within the heart of man. Meaning the last verse of John two says this about God. God doesn't need you, anybody to come and give him the details about your life. He knows everything in your life. You can delete your search history, but God searches every single corner of your heart and he knows the sin no one else knows about and he knows us and he's a savior and the reason Jesus came is because he was the long awaited sacrifice, but he's gotta be what before he can be the sacrifice? He's gotta be pure and blameless. So Jesus didn't come to just die for us. He came to live the life we could never live. And Nicodemus is this man. It says in John 3, chapter one, or verse one, that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Now the Pharisees were the most religious people in the land of Israel, and this is, Nicodemus, and Jesus is actually gonna call him the teacher of Israel, meaning that out of the 6,000 Pharisees in the land of Israel during the ministry of Jesus, there is only one that is the teacher. It's a definitive, definitive article in Greek, meaning he is the most prominent, popular, prestigious man, and he is the only Pharisee in all of the New Testament that is described as one who gave his life to Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is gonna make crystal clear for Nicodemus, and because God's word is living and active, meaning it's not an antiquated document that we're looking at, it's a living and active word, what Jesus is going to make crystal clear for you tonight is that those who have a right relationship with God are not those who are just better than anybody else. They're not those who are more religious than everybody else. It's not those who know more answers than anybody else. It's for one type of person. There is only one type of person in heaven and it's those who have been born again. And we're gonna talk about what that means this evening. Now Nicodemus comes to him and he says, Jesus, we know that you must be from God for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, he's religious, but he comes to Jesus in the cloak of night because here's what he's got going on in his mind. He's anxious, he knows every single answer, but he has no idea 
where he'll spend eternity. He knows the Bible, but he has no assurance that God is his father. Do you know why? Because Pharisees were those that the Bible describes as those who are very religious and external on the outside. But in Matthew 23, Jesus is going to look at them and say, woe to you Pharisees, because on the outside you look really good. You're whitewashed tombs, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. Meaning to everyone else you appear religious and elite. You know the answers, Bible sword drill captains. And yet on your heart, you're deader than anybody else around you because you think you can earn your way to God. And Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees. Woe to you Pharisees. And he's asking Jesus a question though because he knows this. He knows that he knows the truth. Maybe this might sound like some of you. He knows the answers, but if he's honest with himself, he doesn't know God. And so he says, Jesus, How do you do what you do? Because everyone looks at the miracles you're doing. One thing on Jesus, his miracles weren't done on a corner. It's the most attested to a reality in human history that a real man named Jesus did what the Bible says he did. And Jesus doesn't even answer his question, but gets right to the heart of the matter in verse three. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say, and Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, whenever you see the word unless in the Bible, you need to to really dial in. Why? Because the word unless denotes a necessary condition. Unless you put gas in the car, the car will not what? Start. Unless you take this medicine, you will not get better. Unless you man up and ask her on a date, she will not date you. No, like it denotes a necessary condition. And Jesus says to someone who's anxious about where they'll spend eternity, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. But look at Nicodemus' answer. He says in verse four, how can a man enter when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again. Jesus says truly, truly in verse five, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. All that is flesh is flesh, and all that which is of the spirit is spirit. What is Jesus saying? Well, in order to understand this, you have to understand the Old Testament in Ezekiel 36. One of the things that God prophesies, and this goes right in alignment with your theme. In Ezekiel 36, God talks about what he's gonna do in the ministry of Jesus Christ and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What God is going to do in the hearts of sinners is not just go like this, oh, let's clean them up a little bit. It says this in Ezekiel 36. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you. And here's what God says he's gonna do. This this applies for you if you're a believer. God says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. He says you need to be born of the water and the spirit. God is saying two things. That in order for someone to be saved by God, there has to be that of they need to be born of the spirit, which means they need to be made alive and they need to be born by the water, which means they need to be totally purified. You need a total cleansing from sin. Have you ever recognized that you need to be purged? That's what David cries out for in Psalm 51. God, purge me from my sin 
But not only do we need to be cleansed, our hearts need to be made alive because we are spiritually dead. Jesus says all that is flesh is flesh, meaning that if your parents are human, they've been born in the sin, and their grandparents were born in the sin, and your great-great-grandparents are born in the sin. I was joking around at the Bucks of the Blitz with Maddie. My grandpa, Athanasius Christos Artavanus, was an immigrant from Greece. He came, and they were bakers in Baltimore, and my other grandparents were from Germany, and it doesn't really matter where your grandparents are from, because all of them have been born as descendants of Adam, And everyone that is a descendant of Adam carries with them a deposit of sin. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, and there's nothing you can do to change this, Nick. No familial pedigree, no religious heritage, no church background, no Bible answers can make you right with God in of themselves. There is no human achievement based salvation method. And this is the point of the Old Testament, that someone would feel trapped, unable to save themselves. And Jesus says, you need to be born again. And he's looking at Nicodemus and says, how much of a role did you have in your physical birth? What's the answer? How many of you were like, mom, let me out? How many? No one. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, just like you had no role to play in your physical birth, you have absolutely no role to play in your spiritual birth because it is entirely and completely and totally a miracle of God. Notice the language in Ezekiel 36. God says, I will sprinkle clean water and you will be clean. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone. I will, I will, I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. The reason you need to be recrafted and understand the nature of our theme is because salvation is not a joint venture between you and God. And as long as you think it's synergistic, meaning that there's a level of synergy, God takes me 80% and I go 20%, you do not understand the Bible and you do not understand the gospel. I travel frequently and was in an Uber a couple years back and I was sitting with my driver and I was asking him, hey, uh, I always ask the drivers, hey, do you have any background in the things of the Lord? And he told me, yeah, actually, uh, I'm 55 years old and I've only missed church five times in my life. And I was like, okay, big shot, you know, like cool guy, you know. And I said, okay, tell me about what you believe. And he says, well, I'm actually a Mormon. I said, okay, um, what's the main difference between what you believe and what I believe? And I've read a lot about it. I've you know, spent a lot of time with Mormons. And I said, what's the difference between what you believe as a Mormon and what I believe as a Protestant? And here's the answer he gave me. He says, now pretend my daughter, he like jumps into a story. I'm like, this guy's prepared. He says, pretend my daughter wants to buy an iPad. What you believe is that the father pays it all, okay? $5.99 for an iPad. I don't know, someone gave this to me. Here's what I believe as a Mormon. My daughter wants to buy an iPad, so what she does is she starts businesses. She does lemonade stands, babysits, sells some stuff on Facebook Marketplace. She just pursues all of her entrepreneurial gifting and saves and saves and saves and saves and saves. And after a year of savings, she go up to the Apple counter and she slaps down $34. First thing I'm thinking is she's not a very good entrepreneur. Like, (laughs) hey, get with it, Sally. But that's neither here nor there slaps down the $34, and then what I do as the father is I go up and pay the difference. 
Meaning that what she does is she does as much as she can, tries as hard as she can, and gives God as much as she possibly can. And then God goes, okay, I can see you've tried. I'll go up and I'll pay the remaining $565. That couldn't be any further from what the Bible teaches about salvation. We don't offer God $35. You're not just spiritually poor. You're spiritually bankrupt and you have a vast debt you can never, ever, 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 ever pay. And Jesus is looking at a man who is drenched in religiosity, who knows the truth, who is a respected man who teaches the truth. And he says this to Nicodemus and he says this to you. There is nothing you bring to God for your salvation other than the sin that made Jesus' death necessary. That's why we sing, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the, anybody know? The cross I cling. Look with me now. Jesus is going to continue to tell a story. Look with me at chapter three, verse 14. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Pause there for a second because we're about to reach the most well-known words in human history, but before Jesus gets there, he tells a story. He's saying, you can't do this. You can't earn your way to God. You need to be made alive and you need to be remade. And then before he's about to give the method or the means by which we can be remade, he reminds him of a story from Numbers 21 in the Old Testament. And there's a story that Nicodemus would have known well because he was a teacher. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man must be lifted up. There's a story in the Old Testament. If you've ever seen the Prince of Egypt, all the people come out of the land of Egypt and immediately they start to do what they do best. They start to complain And they say to Moses, why have you brought us out here? This food stinks. You should have left us as slaves in Egypt. We liked it better there. We really liked it better when we were slaves. And so God, because of their grumbling and disobedience, it says in Numbers 21, he sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people died. And it says that the remainder of the people were in agony. And it says that the venom of the serpents that bit them were like fire running through their veins. And so they run to Moses in desperation for deliverance and cry out and they say, Moses, we've sinned against you. We've sinned against God. Please deliver us from this toxic venom within us. And Moses goes and talks to God and God says, okay, Moses, I'll have mercy. And here's the way in which that mercy will be received. I want you to take a bronze serpent. I want you to set it up on a pole. And whoever looks to the bronze serpent lifted up will be saved. Whoever looks to the one lifted up will be saved. That's the story. Everyone else that doesn't look will die. And Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and he's drawing parallels because he's a masterful teacher. He's saying, Nicodemus, understand this. You know how they had that toxic venom in their veins. Nicodemus, you have a more deadly poison running through your veins than that of a rattlesnake. You have the toxic venom of sin 
And you cannot compare your infection to someone else's infection because everyone that has been snake bit by the disease of sin has a common denominator. And the common denominator is death. And so what you need to do, Nicodemus, it says in verse 15, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life, that the next time you look to something, it will not be a snake on a pole. It'll be the son of man lifted up on a tree he created, murdered by the people he came to save. And whoever looks to the son of man lifted up on the pole, on that tree, on the cross of Calvary, they will be healed of their sin. Here's what you need to understand about the life of Jesus. Jesus came, he was born a real guy. We sing at Christmas, you know, away in a manger, no, you know, and it says, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That's a garbage line. You know why? Because Jesus wasn't boss baby. He didn't like wake up and be like, hello, Mary, make me a bottle. No, Jesus was a real guy. He lived the perfect life you can never, ever live. And because he lived the perfect life, only that provides the necessary requirements for him to be, as John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who what? Anybody know? Takes away the sin of the world because remember in the Old Testament there was this longing and anticipation for someone who would come and finally say, it's finished. It's finished, the final sacrifice. And Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and saying, do you recognize that you've been bit by sin? You were born this way. And you cannot change this by your own effort. And so it says that, then Jesus, you know, chapters later, I want you to know, and maybe you've you've become so numb to this, you know the answers, but Jesus was taken by the people he came to save. He was flogged, his body was flayed open. He had thorns shoved into his his skull. He was whipped and then he was crucified and he hung there on a tree for hours. And what Jesus was doing on the cross, I hope to just talk to you like maybe brother, sister for a moment. I don't want you to miss this. If you were to ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? Here's the answer. Jesus had to die because there has to be a substitute for my sin and for your sin. All sin is going to be paid for. We talked about this recently, but when Jesus says in the garden, Father, let this cup pass, he's talking about the cup of God's wrath. Because I've often heard, and I've been to hundreds of camps and been a part of them, and people will go into great detail describing the pain of the cross. But the most painful part of the cross was not the nails, it wasn't the thorns, it wasn't the lashing, It was the separation that Jesus endured from the Father. As God the Father declared Jesus legally guilty of your sin, if you're a Christian, every lustful glance, every mean word, every adultery, and every murder that would end up believing on Jesus Christ, and he poured out his wrath on Jesus. And that's why Jesus came. It says in Luke 19.10 that he came to seek and save the lost. Meaning that when Jesus came, you know the key word in the book of Mark? There's one word that's used over and over again. And it's the word immediately. Because Jesus came and he was on a divine mission. And he was on a divine mission to finish everything he came to do in order that he might die. Jesus came to die. 
and he came to die for sinners. It says after three days, Jesus rose from the grave. And this is the greatest miracle of all time and the apex of human history. Because if Jesus stayed in the grave, it would be two things. Number one, it would mean that he wasn't God, but it would also mean that your sin and my sin were not fully paid for. But what the grave shows us is that because Jesus conquered the grave, it means that all of the requirements for you and I to be made right with God have been finally paid for. No more lambs are needed. Meaning that you don't have to try to earn your way to God. Because as they used to demonstrate, as they put their weight on the lambs in the Old Testament, they were relying fully on the efficacy of the lamb. Meaning that if this, only because God places his wrath on the substitute can I live. And now because Jesus conquered death, we can know, know for sure. Listen, you can know for absolute certain where you will spend eternity. I could tell you about a few different faiths, but I've been all over the world, 50 some 60 countries. There is no religion that offers assurance other than the Christian faith. Muhammad on his deathbed says, pray for me that I might enter paradise. Joseph Smith has no idea where he's going on his deathbed. Read their journals. You know why? It's because they're all banking on what they've done as the grounds of their assurance before God. Only the Christian can go, I don't bring anything to God other than the sin which made Jesus' death necessary. And so the logical ensuing question is twofold. One, why would Jesus do this for me? And two, how might this new life be mine? Why would he do this and how can this new life in God be mine where he not only purifies my heart, but he gives me a new heart a new heart that no longer craves my sin. I don't want to crave that sin anymore. I want to love righteousness. Well, the answer is in verse 16. Why did God do this? Why would he die? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The motive for why God would come is not because you are so worthy, but because he is so loving. And God loves sinners. And he came to die for sinners. And if you've ever for a moment doubted the love of God, look no further than the king of the universe slaughtered on a tree he made by the people he made for his glory. Look no further than the king who was slaughtered by the ones who days earlier were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then a few days later, they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. We want Barabbas. Jesus came to die, and he knew that he would be despised by those he came to save. And the question is, why would he do it? And the, the answer is because of his profound love. And here's the thing you need to understand about the love of God. We often think of God loved the world, and there's this element where we think of that in a macro context, that God loves everything and everyone, and his love is just massive. But it says in Ephesians 1 that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Meaning that God has a specific love for you. 
He knows your name. He knows your hairs on your head and on the tree when he was dying, if you're a Christian, he knew he was dying for you. We far too often depersonalize the love of God. It's not just that, yeah, God loves everything and everyone. Yeah, he's a love, he's a love guy. No, God loves you. And then Augustine used to say that he loves each one of us as if there were only one of us. And on the cross, he was pouring out his love and demonstrating his love in such a way where his love is not divided amongst the billions. It's as if he was demonstrating his love for you personally. God's love is... Just make, can I talk about it for a moment? Because if you miss the love of God, you miss God. God's love is eternal. Here's what that means. God's love for you, if you're a Christian, had no beginning in time. Jeremiah 31 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, declares the Lord. Here's what that helps us understand. If God's love had no beginning, it'll have no end. And if it's had no, be- no beginning, then it is not in regards to our human behavior, meaning that there's nothing we did to earn it in the first place because he loved us before we could ever do anything for him. God's love is eternal. God's love is personal. It says in Romans 5 that one of the chief functions of the Holy Spirit is to pour out the love of God into your hearts so that you might know this love is mine. That's why we sing amazing love, how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me you ever doubt the love of God? Look no further than the tree of Calvary where God himself preached the strongest sermon ever on the love of God in a vivid drama. Do you need the love of God? Do you need a new heart? Do you recognize your sin? Is your conscience screaming even now? I want you to just look real quick at verse 18. Because this is often ignored. It says, he who believes in him is not judged. But he who does not believe in him has been judged. What's that next word? Already. Here's what you need to understand about God as judge. One day you will die and you will stand before God. It is appointed once for man to die, it says in Hebrews, and then comes judgment. But the reality is, you have been judged already by God if you do not believe in Jesus Christ. What? Yet you have already been judged by God. That's Jesus saying that. And the only way to reverse the verdict The only way were those who have been judged and are dead and are by nature children of wrath. Do you understand the extremity of your condition? People try to hide this from you. But no, God loves you so much that in the same breath he's telling you of his love, he's reminding you why you need it. People always ask me, I'm around 60,000 high school students a year. Johnny, why do so many people leave the church at 18? I'll tell you why I think they leave the church at 18. It's because for years, people have been trying to play a game, entertaining you enough and not telling you anything scary enough so you don't leave. And so in that, they never confront you with the hard reality that God hates sin and punishes sin and will one day judge sin and you are already under his judgment if you are not a Christian. And so because they keep all these hard elements from people, students don't ever see their need for God. Well, he's just some guy upstairs and he's just a loving teddy bear. 
No, you need to understand that the love of God is not just something that's precious. It's something you desperately need. That's why people cry out for a savior is because they realize not just one day I'll stand before God and could go to hell. Right now, I am under God's judgment. And I need a savior right now. Not when you're 30, not when you've done 10 years of further sin. You need a savior right now. And people try to palletize the Bible and make it not seem so, I, I don't know how I feel about that. Understand this. Every single one of you are gonna stand before God. But even if that's in 50, 60, 70 years, you need a savior right now. This morning I, I went home after the morning session and I was telling Joey this, the sound guy, I was talking to my friend on Thursday night. He is in a pastor in Montana. He was asking me to come preach. My age, little kids. He was asking me to come preach at their fall college retreat. I didn't have great service yesterday. I was on the plane. Texted him back today. I got a call from someone else today. And they said, hey, Johnny, my buddy's name is Danny, the college pastor. Johnny, have you heard about Danny? No. This is at lunch today. Danny was working out last night and fell over dead. What? Shocked. I mean, just shocked. Fit guy, four little kids. Johnny was working out, and before he hit the floor, he had a heart attack, died. I'll tell you what about Danny, and this isn't like a scare attack, it's a real thing. You just do not know when you are going to meet God. You do not know. You are not promised another 20 years. I always, I'm at camp and, and you know, I, I've, I used to say something along these lines. Hey, if it's not now, just remember what was said here. I will never ever do that again. You know why? Because every single year there are students I take pictures with at camp that don't make it to another summer. So can I just plead with you as a friend, you need a savior from your sin. You need a savior from your sin. And you need the love of God because not only do you have a sin problem, not only do you have a heart problem, you have a satisfaction problem that craves for something that only God can supply. Your heart has been hardwired in such a way where you will never find true joy outside of God because you are made by God, for God, to be with God, and yet you shove your life full of junk and you wonder why it doesn't satisfy and it just gets deeper and deeper and you chase and chase and chase. You need the love of God in your heart. You live in a joyless world and only the Christian has a reason to be joyful and it's because they have the love of God that they can never be separated from. How can I receive the love of God? Well, we already read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It may sound so simple, but it's very profound. The only way you can be made right with God is by placing your faith in the work of Jesus Christ that Jesus lived the perfect life, that he died the death you could never die, that he rose from the grave, and that he is God, and that he is Lord of your life. Meaning that 
It's not enough to just say, yeah, I believe this stuff. It's that you must surrender and submit to him as Lord. Have you ever done that, honestly? I'm not asking if your parents did that. I'm not asking if you've maybe theologically assented to some truths. Have you ever come to the point in your life where you go, Jesus is God and Jesus is my king? There is only one way where God takes vile, ungodly, self-righteous sinners and makes them right with God. Do you think you've done too far, gone too far for God to save you? Jesus says, whosoever believes. There's no footnote associated with this verse. Jesus says in Isaiah 55, whosoever. In John, whosoever believes. In Matthew 11, whosoever believes because God is on a mission. You know if Jesus Christ came to preach at Hume New England, what he would say? He would say, open your Bibles. I've got nothing new to say. And then it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that ambassadors of Jesus Christ plead on behalf of God for sinners to be reconciled, meaning that Jesus is not up in heaven going, see if I care. He's not an apathetic savior. He's an eager savior, and he makes his plea now through human instruments, meaning that God's not up there with his arms folded. He's so loving and so desires to save that he pleads through human instruments and says, why? Why would you continue to live in sin when there's such a loving savior that awaits you? Why would you, why would you forfeit this intimacy with God. You may be asking, is there any other way? Jesus says, I am the way. You may be asking, is there any other truth? Jesus says, no, I am the truth. You may be asking, is there any other life? And Jesus says, I am the life. You don't become a Christian over many years. You are remade by God in a moment. You're recrafted not over a long period of time in a moment. Here's the lyrics to the great hymn, To God Be the Glory. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender, the vilest means the worst, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Do you want a new heart? Well, God can give you one right now, and he does so because of his love through the means of faith. Would you pray with me? God, we're so thankful for your word that it teaches and trains us everything we need to know about your profound love for us. It says even in the passage we are looking at this morning in Ephesians 2, that we are by nature children of wrath, we're dead in sin, but in verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, made us alive. Maybe if I'm talking to you and you recognize you need a new heart, can I, can I look at you for just a moment? If, you, if you're recognizing you need a savior this evening, can I look at you directly? and just speak to you for a moment. If you recognize you need a new heart and you want God to be Lord of your life, I just wanna walk you through what that means. It means that you are confessing your sin. It means that not only you confess your sin, it means that you turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus Christ. It means that now Jesus is Lord. And if you know that you need a savior, can, I, can, I, can you look at me for a moment and can I pray for you now? 
God, we thank you for the people here this evening that are recognizing that they need a savior. Lord, no prayer is what saves us in of itself, but God, faith saves. Faith saves. If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And so God, for those of here that are here that know they need to be remade and recrafted by God, would you do a miracle in their heart right now? Your conversation with Nicodemus helps us to understand that there's no achievement-based salvation method. There is one method by which God saves sinners, and that is through renewal, rebirth. And that's only possible for those of us who are given the gift of faith. And so God, would you please save some now. Lord, for others here that are maybe fighting and uh, are reluctant to come to you, help them to know that you are an eager savior and help them to know that this is the most important reality facing their life, what they do with Jesus Christ. Pray this in your name, amen. Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the Christian faith is a public faith, meaning that you cannot live the Christian life in the closet. We used to hang this poster in our house, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But the reality is, your Christian life can't just be reserved to your house. It needs to be lived out in a dark and dying and decaying world. And so if God has done a miracle in your heart tonight, I'll, I wanna in a moment just ask you to stand so that others can celebrate what God has done, but also so that you might demonstrate to other people, I wanna live a different life. And when I ask you to stand, it's not because standing saves you, it's because we want other people to be drawn in to celebrate what God has done. So if God's done a work in your life, would you stand on the count of three? One, two, three. Stay standing for just a moment. Here, here's what God says in Luke 15. It says that in heaven, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who need no repentance. Meaning that every single time a single 13-year-old gives their life to Jesus Christ, you know what Jesus says in heaven? Let's start the party because Salvation brings God great joy because he's a God of love. He takes no delight in the punishment of the wicked, but he loves to draw others to himself. I'm so thankful for what God has done in your life tonight. Can we thank God all together? A great